0: Welcome to the Ewok podcast, the official podcast of the East Wilton Union Church with Robbie Locke. We're glad you're here, and we hope that this podcast is a blessing to your life and helps you walk closer to God. Our goal is to help you draw close to God and understand scripture better in its entirety. Well, without further ado, here's Robbie. 1 John chapter 3 verses 18 down through 22. First John 3 and verse 18. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. We are opening once again to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 and we have read previously verses 18 down through 22. And I'll begin by just reading verse 18, and I had, as we were finished last time, we were on this verse, and I just have a couple of more thoughts that I want to share with you uh, in this regard, and then we will move on to the main passage for today, which is verses 19 down through 22. But notice it says in First John chapter 3 and verse 18, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Let's just bow for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we humbly bow in your presence today, we do so first out of love for you, out of a desire to worship you, to magnify your glorious name. You are an awesome God, and we love you, Lord. We truly do. Our desire now is that you might speak to us by your Spirit through the Word of God. Lord, we need to hear your voice we need to be sure Lord that you are teaching us how you want us to walk and how you want us to live every day and for those of us who know Christ we have the Spirit and he is our teacher so I pray Lord that you will use this instrument to be able to communicate your truth and may it result in a transformation in each of our lives making us more and more like Jesus as the time goes on Lord if there's anyone here that does not know Jesus as their Savior It's our prayer that today might be the day when they would understand how desperately in need they are of Him and how amazing and how wonderful He is as the only Savior of men. Thank you, Lord, for what you will do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to begin this morning with a quotation from uh, John MacArthur's commentary here in chapter 3. Just listen carefully, and I want to point out some important things, I think, in this statement that he makes. And I quote, It is possible, emphasis, possible, to have an initial positive interest in the gospel, like the seeds on shallow soil and weedy ground in Jesus' parable of the sower. So it is possible to have an, ish, an initial positive interest in the gospel and yet not possess true saving faith. In other words there are some people who make a profession of faith but very quickly that interest seems to fizzle out and they just have no interest to continue on at all. And it's because it was an emotional decision or whatever it might have been but But it wasn't a sincere, true, heartfelt decision for Christ. Now, he goes on to say this, and this is the important part I want to emphasize. However, and I quote, When the grace of God is truly planted in a person's heart, it will always result in a changed nature. Did you hear that? When the gospel of Christ truly comes into a person's heart, your life will be changed. If any man is in Christ, he's a what? He's a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And he's also, not only has a changed nature, but I go on to quote, he is marked by an abiding desire to live a holy life. When you really get saved, you want to live for God. When you really get saved, you want to live a life of purity that is pleasing to our holy God in heaven. And one of the manifestations of a holy life is demonstrating selfless, sacrificial love for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Notice the words I use, selfless love. That means, in other words, you love them even if you're never loved back in return. You don't love others so that they will love you. You just love because you know it's supposed to love. Selfless love. Also sacrificial love. You cannot love without sacrificing. It's always going to cost you something. It may cost you money now and again but the truth is true love often the greatest sacrifice we make is a sacrifice of time of just being willing to sit with a person who's going through that difficulty, or maybe to show up to help them with some need that they have in their life. But it takes time, and we need to be prepared to do that. Selfless, sacrificial love is an evidence of the holy life that a Christian, a true Christian, lives. True love is not shown in words alone, it is shown in deeds. And that thought is where we left off last Sunday morning. The often selfish indifference of unbelievers. I say often because quite frankly there are some nice unbelievers. Right? I mean there's some really nice people who are very thoughtful, very helpful, very kind. And then there are some that are not. Right? But what we would expect of a Christian should be more than what we expect from someone that doesn't profess to be a Christian. So the often selfish indifference of unbelievers will stand in sharp contrast to the generous, compassionate love that true believers should exhibit. And I say should because unfortunately some who profess to know Christ don't show an awful lot of love either. So we kind of have issues on both sides of that coin. But the true Christian should be loving others and manifesting it through a life of good works. Now you notice the danger back in verse 17, it says whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, and notice the next phrase, and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? What he's saying is if you see a true brother or sister in Christ and they have a legitimate need, and you have the possibility of helping meet that need, if you refuse to do anything, you have shut your heart off to that brother or to that sister. Now, I mentioned last week, sometimes you don't have anything that you can give or do to meet a particular need. If you don't, you can't give it, and God doesn't expect you to give it. But if you have the ability to help, and you say, It doesn't matter, I'm not going to help that brother or that sister, God says you're shutting your heart off to that brother or sister. And I want to suggest to you that that suggests three things, three attitudes. Number one, an attitude of rebellion against God's will. It isn't just that, well, I'm just not going to do that today. No, you are disobeying the will of God. He makes it clear. If you love your true believer, you should love your brothers and be willing to selflessly sacrifice in love for them. So to not do so is to have an attitude of rebellion. If you have your bulletins, you'll notice the notes in there. There's the details of this. Just follow along. Secondly, the attitude is the attitude of selfishness regarding what you possess. Selfishness, whether it is of your literal possessions, whether it is of the exercise of your spiritual gifts, whether it is this this idea of devoting time to help people that are in need. You know that some people, all they need from you is to just sit with them. And just be quiet and hold her hand sometimes. They don't need you to say. In fact, sometimes when we open our mouths, we, 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 we take away the blessing because we don't always know what to say. Some people seem to have the right thing to say, but some of us don't know what to say. And, but just being there. Brother, I just want you to know I've come to, to, to just be with you. Have a little pr- word of prayer with them and just sit there with them. But it takes time to do that. And I want to suggest that if we are unwilling to help our brother, and we shut our heart off, we are manifesting an attitude of selfishness. Rebellion against God, selfishness with regard to what we possess, and thirdly, it's an attitude of indifference to the need of this brother or sister in Christ. When you are in trouble, when you have a need, doesn't it mean something to you when someone steps forward to try to help you? I mean, Doesn't that encourage your heart? I want to suggest to you today, brethren, that when we are unwilling to do this, we are showing indifference toward these people, as though we don't care what they're going through. And if you don't care at all what other believers are going through, you need to look at your heart. Because the Lord says you've either shut your heart off or you've opened your heart up. It's one or the other. And so what are you doing? We need to follow the example of the New Testament church. I'm just going to read a couple of verses for you. You don't need to look these up. Acts chapter 2 verses 44 and 45. Now all who believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Now this is a unique passage, and it refers to a specific period of time in the very, very beginning of the church. This is from the day of Pentecost forward, when on one day alone, 3,000 people were converted. That day they started with 120 people, and at the end of the day they had 3,120 as a part of the true church of Christ. Now can you imagine, even with 120 people, you know, if you have 120 people, not everyone's going to get involved. Right? You, you, you know that, right? I mean, some people get involved. So if we have 120, now there's 3,120. Do you think there's a bit of work to do? Do you think there's going to be a few needs represented in 3,120 lives? But what it says was that in this beginning, because there was this sudden growth in the church, and most of these people live from out, you know, areas far away. And they came in. Well, these people had to eat. I mean, they ended up staying in Jerusalem for quite a period of time. So those that lived there and had land or had possessions, they sold some of those things so that there was money available to support these believers. So this was a unique situation in the beginning of the church. But what I want you to see is when you come to Acts 11, now nine chapters later, listen to this, it says, Then the disciples, each according to his ability determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. The brethren in Judea were very poor. Now the Gentile churches, who were not rich, but the Gentile churches, out of gratitude for having received the gospel and knowing that the brethren in Judea were suffering financially, gathered up offerings. And they every week took up an offering until Paul came, they gave him that money and sent it to Judea. But what I want you to see is it says, each according to his ability, determined to send relief. You know, the fact that somebody might give ten dollars and somebody might give one dollar doesn't matter. It only matters is what you have and what you're willing to give out of what you have. I've said this to you before. My mother always used to say to me, well, when I win the lottery, man, what I'll do for the Lord. And I says, Mama, do you ever expect to win the lottery? Well, no, probably not. I said, Do you understand? God's more interested in the ten bucks you got in your pocket than the lottery you'll never win. She had to buy a ticket. Oh, she kept buying her ticket. I don't know if she still does, but she used to. She used to. My my point is simply this. Folks, it doesn't matter if you have a million dollars or if you have ten dollars. You give according to your ability. That's all God expects. He doesn't expect you to give more than what you have. Nobody can do that. But give according to your ability. James also speaks of the deadness of faith without works. You're in 1 John. Just back up a few pages to the book of James. James chapter 2 and verses 14 down through 18. There's two passages we'll turn to because they're a bit longer passages and I think it's easier for you to follow along while I'm reading. James chapter 2. Beginning in verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can faith save him? Now, let me stop and be very clear about what James is talking about here. He's not talking about faith to save your soul. He's talking about your profession of faith and the ability for other people to see your faith to see the evidence of your faith. So what he's saying is, you can say all you want you have faith, but if there's no evidence of your faith, who's going to ever believe it's real? So he says, can faith save you if you have no works? He's not talking about your soul, he's talking about your testimony before men. I think they say, oh what a great Christian, I know he doesn't do anything for anybody, but he's a great Christian? No, no. They're going to say, he's a great Christian, why? Because he's showing love, he's sacrificing, he's being selfless. Alright, let's move on. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, let me stop again. He's not saying if they don't have a million dollars in the bank. right? He's saying they're naked, which basically means they don't have sufficient clothing. And if they don't have food to eat, we're talking about the basic necessities of life. He says, if you have a brother or sister and doesn't have any lunch to eat today, is walking around and and doesn't have sufficient clothing, I don't know about you, but I'm awful glad I got extra layers of clothes to put on this time of the year. And you see a brother or sister that doesn't have those things? He says, if they're naked or destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? (laughs) I can look at you and say, well, God bless you. I'm going home to have a pork chop and baked potato for lunch myself, but I'm not inviting you. You know what? When you've only got one pork chop and one baked potato at home, you know what you can do? You take a knife out of the drawer and you cut them in half. Amen? Yeah. Come on Scott, come on. Alright then, cook four potatoes, alright? Then you get your two. But, but do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I want the pork chop for myself. I, you go, you get that pork chop for yourself. But do you understand what I'm saying, folks? It isn't how much you have, it's what are you willing to do with what you have. If you have a loaf of bread, you can give a half a loaf away. And then you both trust God for tomorrow. But the point is, it isn't like I've got to have you know 18 loaves of bread before I give you one. But if I have one slice of bread, I can cut that in half. That's what, that's what he's talking about here. He says, if you just say, God bless you, you know, go your way and don't do anything to help. Verse 17, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith. I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Again, I can talk about how much faith I have all day every day, but if you see no real evidence by the way I live my life, you're going to question the validity of that faith. So James is saying, listen, faith without works is dead. You can profess to be anything you want to be, but until you demonstrate the reality of it in your life, nobody's going to believe. Nobody's going to believe. So, brethren, we need to minister to other Christians and I want to give you three real quick thoughts. Number one, selflessly, we talked about that, selflessly, voluntarily. You know what kind of giver God loves? A cheerful giver. A cheerful giver. And that's not just when the offering plate comes around. We give in many different ways. If you're going to give that half a slice of bread, you're giving. You need to do that voluntarily. In other words, it needs to be something you want to do. If you take and as you're breaking that bread in half, you're grumbling and things, saying, man I'm going gonna, gonna to be hungry today, I ain't, but here's your half, I mean if you have that attitude, who's going to believe that's coming from your heart, right? I'd say to the, I'd say to the miserable old person, just eat the whole thing yourself. I'll figure out something else, right? We need to be have a heart that's that's ready to do this, that wants to do this, so selflessly, voluntarily, not out of obligation. And what I mean by that is simply, oh, I guess I have to do this. If that's your attitude, I got news for you. God doesn't need what you have. He can find somebody else to meet that need, He can find somebody else, some other way to help that person. But isn't it wonderful He wants to use you? I mean aren't you excited that God says, you know what, if you give a cup of water in my name one day I'm going to reward. We don't even have to give out Pepsi Cola, just a glass of water. And the Lord will acknowledge that and reward it one day. But to be able to say, I'm a partner together with God in meeting the needs of my brothers and sisters. Because you know what? Down the road, I'm going to have the need and I'm going to hope that my brothers and sisters will love me enough and love the Lord enough to help me in my moment of need, right? That's what the body is all about. Folks, would you say this together with me? We need each other. Say it. We We need need each other. other. We need to believe that. And we need to act upon it. And then the last thing, we should not give with hypocrisy. Sometimes we give and in the moment of giving we make it look like and we pretend like we're happy to give but in our hearts we're not. That's called hypocrisy. That's giving but not really wanting to do so. James says, do you want to have a testimony? Live it out and you won't have to talk about it. Live it out and people will know. You won't have to go around saying, see how spiritual I am. I'm such a godly guy. You won't have to say anything. If you're living out your Christianity, people are going to know that Jesus has changed your life. And he will give glory to God for your good works, which you have done for his glory. Amen? Okay, let's move on to the next part here. Number, Major point number two, obedience confirms true faith through the conscience. Obedience confirms true faith through the conscience. Now I'm going to read verses 19 to 21. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. Now in verse 19, we see here that obedience in loving the brethren confirms that we are of the truth. That we are of the truth. That we're not just of the truth intellectually, we are of the truth in practice. God knows whether our love is genuine or not. Our love for others should first and foremost be motivated by love for the Lord. In other words, I ought to do for you first and foremost because I love the Lord. I want to please Him. I want to do His will. Because even if I help you, you may never even be grateful. Have you ever done something for somebody and they didn't show a bit of appreciation or gratitude? If you did it to get the applause from them, well, you've got all the rewards you'll ever get if they, if they applaud you. And if they don't and you get ugly about it, you've had the wrong motivation from the beginning. You should just do it because you love the Lord. And whether they acknowledge it or not, it doesn't matter in the end but we ought to be motivated by love for the Lord and then motivated by love for the brethren. Here's the other long passage I want you to turn with me to, Matthew chapter 25. Now let me very quickly tell you that contextually this passage has to do with the judgment of the gentile nations at the end of the tribulation period. So this is not directly connected to an evaluation of the church But I believe the principle in this judgment applies. The principle of it. In Matthew chapter 25 I want to begin reading in verse 34 and I'm going to read all the way down to verse 40. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food, I was thirsty and you gave me drink, I was a stranger and you took me in I was naked and you clothed me I was sick and you visited me I was in prison and you came to me then the righteous will answer him saying Lord when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink when did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Here is a principle to keep in mind when you are helping others, whether they are in the body or whether they're unbelievers. When you are helping others, Jesus takes your act of help towards someone else as something that you're doing for Him personally. So if you feed someone that's hungry, it's as though you were feeding the Lord Jesus Himself. Do you think that will change your attitude as to whether the person is appreciative or not? Do you think it will make a difference if you know you've done it for Jesus, and if you've done it for Him, that's enough? right? He goes on in the rest of the verse and he takes the other side. He says the ones that are on the left, he said, you know, I was hungry and you didn't feed me and all of a sudden, well when were you hungry and we didn't feed you? He said, when you didn't do it to the least of these my brethren, you didn't do it to me. So here's the principle that carries over. Everything that we do, we do for him, yes we do it for others, we do it first for him because ultimately only what he thinks matters. But at the same time, in doing it to them, it should help us to rejoice by saying, you know what, this person, it doesn't matter to me at all. Whether they thank me, whether they pat me on the back, doesn't matter. I'll just do it. You want to know why? Because I did it for Jesus. I did it to him, as it were. That's the principle that Jesus is giving us here. So, the practice of love shows that we are of the truth and that the truth is... In us. Are you of the truth? You can know that by how you treat your brothers and sisters in Christ and when they're in need do you do what you can again what you can within your ability to help? If you never do you might have to just look inside and say Lord maybe there's something deficient in my love today. Help me to be more sensitive to the needs of my brothers and my sisters in Christ. Notice letter B here. Obedience in loving the brethren assures our hearts before God. We see this at the end of verse 19. He says not only do we know that we are of the truth, but he says this will assure our hearts before Him. Now I want to talk to you for a few minutes this morning about the conscience. Let me begin by saying the conscience is not 100% trustworthy. Because your conscience will respond based upon how you have been taught. You may have been taught wrongly, and therefore, when you do something different than what you were taught, you'll feel bad, and maybe what you were taught was wrong. Maybe that thing is not actually bad. But you will respond, your conscience will respond, either condemning you, or supporting you, Based upon what you've been taught, so let me just say that the conscience, while given to us by God, is not a hundred percent proof, because it can be improperly taught. But what I want you to understand is that God has put within the heart of man His basic law. I'm not talking about the Ten Commandments per se. The Bible says that the law of God is written in the hearts of all men. There is a basic understanding amongst people about what is right and what is wrong. You go out into society today and you say to people do you believe that killing someone, murdering someone is right or wrong? The vast majority, almost a hundred percent, are gonna say of course it's wrong. You shouldn't kill somebody. How many believe it's okay to rob a bank? Now do we have people rob banks? Yeah, but the vast majority of people, what is their attitude? Now, it's not right to rob a bank. And you can go on and on. There's basic understanding of right and wrong. And that comes to us through this law of God that is written in our hearts and it is evaluated through the exercise of the conscience. Now, let me read this verse for you in Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them." Now the Jews had not only the Ten Commandments, but a vast array of laws in the Old Testament, over 600 of them, and those laws helped them to know what they should do and what they should not do as the people of God, the national people of God. Gentiles did not have access, for the most part, to the Old Testament Scriptures. So they didn't know about the Ten Commandments. They didn't know about all of these other laws that had been given to the Jewish nation. But what Paul teaches us is that Gentiles, in other words, anyone that is not a Jew, There is a law that is written in their hearts by God, and through the conscience, he helps them in a given moment to know whether what they did is right or what they did is wrong. And I know that you and I experience that on a regular basis. And we actually have two voices speaking to us. We have the voice of conscience, but if the voice of conscience gets it wrong, the Holy Spirit can step in and he can convict us in the right way, right? And show us what is right and what is wrong. This means that every person has some degree of self-knowledge and some innate ability to recognize right and wrong. Everybody has that basic ability. So notice in your notes, there are several points here. Number one, true Christians have embraced the truth of Scripture by which they are regenerated and are being sanctified. Now let me just emphasize, this is so important. You and I get saved through the power of the Word of God in the hands of the Holy Spirit. When you hear the gospel, the Spirit takes the truth of the Word and He applies it to your life. He brings you to that place of decision where you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit regenerates. That has to do with getting the new birth, becoming a new person in Christ. That is the work of the Spirit through the Word. 1 Peter one twenty three says, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever. Now not only are we regenerated through the scripture, we are being sanctified through the scripture. What is sanctification? That is that progressive growth from where we were at the moment we were saved, moving us in character and conduct more like Jesus up until that moment when he takes us to heaven and he completes the work. That's sanctification. And we're all in the process of sanctification but sanctification comes through the Word of God. In other words if you want to be more like Jesus you must spend time reading and meditating in and applying the Word of God to your life. If you don't do that you will never grow more like Jesus. It says in John 17, 17, Sanctify them, set them apart, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And so two Christians embrace the scripture. Why is this important? Because scripture, when you have your mind filled, saturated with the word of God, it informs your conscience so that your conscience can properly react. And as I said, even if in some moment your conscience either lacks the information it needs, the Holy Spirit is always there as the third person of the Trinity to convict us of sin when that's needful to be done. But he uses our conscience. So, the truth of scripture is necessary for regeneration and sanctification. Number two, true Christians desire to know and obey the word. If all you want to do is to fill your head with information, it will never make you a man or a woman of God. In fact, the Bible says that an abundance of knowledge generally causes someone to be prideful. It says, knowledge puffeth up. And so just knowing a lot about the Bible is not what God is interested in. Yes, is the information important? Is it helpful? Absolutely. But He wants us to take the next step and apply the Word of God to our lives. To live it out in our experience so that if He says, you know, if we confess our sins He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, then what are we going to do? We're going to be regularly, daily, continually confessing our sins. Do you want to be clean before the Lord? Well, that's the only way to remain clean. When he says, you know, uh, if you love me, keep my commandments. Well, if, if, if you want to demonstrate your love for the Lord, you keep the commandments that he has given. And the first and foremost of the commandments is to love the Lord your God, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. And then later Jesus adapted it, as we see in 1 John. We've seen it several times. He says, love your brother as I have loved you, as Jesus loved us. And so we want to not only know the word, we want to obey the word. 1 John 2, 3-6, we studied this before. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says I know him, that is I'm I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus. He who says I know him and does not keep his commandments, here's black and white John speaking, he says he's a liar. Now, I can't think of the last time I looked someone straight in the face and told them they were a liar. That's a pretty bold thing to say. And he says, if you say you're a Christian and you're not keeping the commandments, you are a liar. That's it. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. In other words, How do I know that you love Jesus and are following Jesus? Because you're acting like Jesus did. You're following in his steps. You're seeking to do what Jesus would do if he were in your situation at that given moment. Notice the third thing. When believers obey the word, their consciences inform them that they did the right thing, giving them joy and godly confidence. Doesn't it bless your heart? When you just did something and in your heart of hearts you know that what you did was pleasing to God. Isn't that great? Have you been on the opposite side of that picture? Where you just did something, maybe you just spoke to someone, you just said something to someone and the way you said it or exactly what you said you knew would not be something that would be pleasing to the Lord. How do you feel after you do that? I mean, we feel terrible, don't we? We feel convicted, we feel bad. If we're a real Christian and we've just offended somebody then we ought to feel bad about that. The conscience is God's guilt producing warning device given to every person to confront sin. When you begin to feel guilt in your heart over something that you've done, what God is trying to do is to point out the sin issue in your life. Now I do believe people sometimes are guilty of things they don't need to be guilty of and again it's because they have been mistaught with regard to certain issues, but for the most part when we feel guilty it's because we know we did something we shouldn't do. We feel bad. We don't have the joy of the Lord, in fact we feel pretty miserable about it. We'll talk about that in just a moment. In the same way that pain is a physical warning mechanism that tells people they have a bodily injury or an illness. The conscience is a spiritual warning mechanism that alerts of conduct dangerous to the soul. If I have a pain in my side I got a good idea something's wrong. It may be a big thing, it may be a little thing, but the pain brings attention to the problem. The conscience, when it makes us feel guilty, is a spiritual warning mechanism to bring attention to the wrong we've done. Why? Not only that we will confess it, but number two, that we'll repent of it. Because you know what repentance is? Repentance isn't just feeling sorry. Repentance says, Lord, I feel so bad about what I've done, Lord, I never want to do it again. Help me never to fail in this way again. Now I may fail in that way again, but it won't because that's what I want to do or what I plan to do. My plan should be, with the help of God, to say no to this sin. I never want to feel guilty over this issue again. Alright? To function effectively, the conscience must be informed by the right standards because it is only a reactor to the person's convictions about right and wrong. Let me give you a couple of verses about this. Romans chapter 9 and verse 1. This is the Apostle Paul, and he says this. I tell the truth in Christ. Now, if you get up and you say, I tell the truth in Christ, what are you in effect saying? You're saying, listen, I'm swearing by the name of my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that what I'm about to say is true. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, listen, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. He says, I've just declared these things to you and there's not a bit of conviction that I've said something wrong or that I've lied or that I've misspoken. He says, I have the testimony of the Holy Spirit through my conscience saying that what I have just told you is the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. 2 Corinthians 1.12. Again, it's Paul and he's writing to the, to the Corinthians and he says, Our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience is that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity. He said, I know that I have conducted myself in the world in simplicity. Simplicity That means with singleness of mind. You know, we talk about someone that, that talks out of both sides of their mouth, right? They're saying one thing, but the truth is they talk to somebody else later and they say the exact opposite. They're talking out of both sides of your mouth there are people that kind of live that way. And he says, I live with simplicity, I have singleness of mind. In other words, I have only one purpose, I'm standing for the truth, I'm telling the truth, I'm living the truth, I'm seeking to do what pleases God. And he said, my conscience helps me to know that I'm conducting myself in that way. With godly sincerity. What a great phrase godly sincerity notice the next point here if believers sin we're trying to follow the progression here if believers sin their consciences indict them on account of their wrong thoughts or words or actions John chapter 8 and verse 9 it says those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one You remember that was the story when they were going to stone the adulterous woman. And Jesus said, he that is without sin cast the first stone. And it says of them, when they heard him say that, being convicted of their conscience. In other words, they were standing there. They might have been able to say, oh, I've never physically committed adultery. But not a one of them could stand there and say, I've never sinned. And Jesus said, if you have, you know, the, the one that's without sin, throw the first stone and then the rest of us will join you. It says they went from the oldest to the youngest. They went out, they left, quietly, never did a thing, no one threw a stone, why? Because their consciences convicted them that they were sinners. Number five, if believers persist in sin, now this is different, sometimes we sin but we confess it immediately and repent, that's the way we ought to do it, amen? But there are some times when we persist in our sins. In other words, for a period of time. Maybe I got really mad at someone and I got angry. And for the next two weeks, I justify my anger. And I say, I don't care whether I don't like this or I don't like that. And for a period of time, we don't repent of that. the bad words we said or the attitude that we manifested. If we persist in sin, implicitly the conscience will make believers fearful, depressed, and insecure. I'm talking about persisting in sin over a long period of time. You know what, I've had people come to me and say, you know, I've been away from the Lord for a long time. Maybe I'm not even saved. But you know why they're feeling that way? Because they probably are saved. They used to walk with the Lord faithfully. The problem is, the sin has built up. And the guilt has built up. And now they're saying, man, if I've done all this stuff and I have all this going on inside of me, maybe I'm not even a Christian. They begin to doubt. I want you to know, brethren, God doesn't want us to doubt our salvation. And one of the reasons, one of the ways we keep from doubting is to continue to walk in obedience to Him because it's a demonstration of the fact that we're pleasing God and when we're pleasing God, He's being glorified. And you know what? When you know you're glorifying God, it results in joy, doesn't it? But it's only when we're living in sin and persisting in sin that we have the opposite response. Listen to David when he describes his situation. He said, when I kept silent... My bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. Isn't that quite a description? He says, because of my sin and not dealing with it, it was like my bones were aching inside me. I mean, have you ever been in such a miserable state that you just felt like you ached all over? That's what he's talking about. He goes on to say this, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Do you think the hand of God can be a heavy hand when it needs to be? Imagine having the heavy hand of God upon your life. He says, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. <laughs> he says, I, I, I'm, just, I'm just dried right out. I, I, just, I just feel, I mean, have you ever felt spiritually dried out as it were? No vitality, no life. In Psalm 40, he says this Do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. For innumerable evils have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me, so that I am not able to look up. Have you ever been so upset and so miserable spiritually that you felt like you couldn't even pray? You felt like you couldn't even look up to heaven and talk to the Lord because you just felt so terrible about the way you were living. That's what he says. He says, I have so much guilt, I just, I can't even lift up my head to heaven. Remember the Jews, when they prayed, they prayed like this. They lifted up their hands and they looked up with eyes open to heaven. And he says, I feel so miserable because of my sin. I, I, I can't even lift up my eyes toward heaven to be able to worship you. He said, they are more than the hairs of my head. His sins are more than the hairs of my head. Therefore, my heart fails me. That's what happens, folks, when we don't listen to the conscience. That's what happens when we sin and don't deal with it immediately. As we persist in sin, we can find ourselves exactly in this condition. If sin is not confronted, believers will begin to question the genuineness of their profession of faith on account of their prolonged disobedience. And that's the reason, is their prolonged disobedience causes them to question their own conversion. Only those who have been genuinely converted through the supernatural work of God possess the sacrificial love that John describes in verses 14 to 18. You can't love like in verses 14 to 18 of this chapter unless you have the Lord. He's the only one that can give that kind of love to you. And not only that, that issues in the submissive obedience that John describes in verses 4 to 12, which was the first half of the chapter. Remember we said there are two clear evidences of salvation in 1 John chapter 3. Number one, you live in righteousness. You live in holiness. And number two, you love your brothers and sisters in Christ selflessly and sacrificially. He says if you do those two things, you never have to doubt your salvation. You have the evidence, the proof in your life. You're living holy, and you're loving your brothers and sisters in the Lord. As we minister in love to our brethren, we realize that it is God himself who is working in and through our lives. The truth is, if you've ever been in a situation with somebody that was really, really difficult, have you ever been in a situation with somebody that was really, really difficult, and the Lord enabled you to love them anyway? You had to come away saying, Lord, if you hadn't helped me, I could never have done that. I could never have loved that person that way if you hadn't done a work in my life. And you know what? When you know God is working in you and he's working through you, you know what it gives you? It gives you confidence. It gives you confidence. And this is the last thing I want you to see. We're just going to take one more minute. And I want you to see here that with sin dealt with, that is confessing and repenting of our sins, and obedience enjoined, we're seeking to live an obedient life, this results in a calm, tranquil, confident heart, leading to confident prayer. Have you heard this verse before? Hebrews 4.16, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The word boldness, and we see that here in... Well, in that passage that I just read, that word boldness literally means confidence. And the word confidence here means boldness. It's the Greek word parēsia, freedom of speech. Now, if I have boldness just on a human level, that means that I have no fear of coming into your presence and, and expressing what's on my mind. We do that with people all the time. We go in, we just express, we have confidence to share our point of view or what we're thinking. But when it comes to God... It means coming into the presence of our loving Heavenly Father without any fear. Aren't you glad you don't have to be afraid of God? (laughs) We have the fear of the Lord, but we're not afraid of Him. We want to be in awe and in reverence of God, but we don't have to be afraid of Him. So not only are we without fear, but we have full assurance that whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Notice this verse, it says... In verse 22, and whatever we ask, we what? We receive from him because we keep his commandments. Wow, I'm going to work really hard this week, so by the end of the week when I pray for my million dollars, the Lord will come through with it. Is that what that verse means? No, I don't think so either. It's not what it means at all. What he's simply saying is this. He said, listen, you know what? The more we, going back to the things we've said, the more we filled our minds and saturate our minds with the word of God. The more we obey the Word of God in our practical lives, the more intimate we are in our fellowship with God, the more we pursue holiness, the more we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. When it comes time to pray, we know there's nothing between us and God, and we come boldly into His presence, and we pray. But here's something very important. Our prayers are informed by the Word. So when I come in, I'm not going to say, oh, Lord, I want a million dollars. No. But boy, I can come in and say, Lord, you know, my friend here, not saved, and I really want you to, to be working in that person's heart, Lord, so they'll get saved. I, I come to him and say, Father, you know, I, I've got this urgent need that's come up, and I, I don't have the funds, so Lord, I'm coming. I have, I have confidence, because you said that you would meet all of my what? all of my needs according to your riches and glory and this is something I really need Lord you know I need it and so Lord I'm confident so when I come in i say, oh Lord please can I somehow convince you to love me enough to meet my need no he's already promised amen he's already promised so I come in boldly and say Lord you know this is a really truly is a need this is not a want this is an absolute need Lord I have confidence I don't have to even wonder if it's coming I just have to wait For the moment, it does come. It's the when, Lord, whenever you want to do it, hopefully today, but maybe he waits tomorrow, or he waits a week, but I still come with boldness because he said, I will do certain things. Listen, our assurance is based upon several things. It's based upon who God is, but it's also based upon what he has promised. It's not only his character, it's his word. And God will not fail us. And so when we come to Him and we seek Him and we pray according to His will because our minds and petitions have been informed through the Word, we pray for the right things, we have absolute assurance before God and we have boldness to come before His throne. Brethren, there's every reason to want to live out your Christian life, every reason to have assurance with God. Not just for prayer, but just in your relationship with Him. Isn't it great to be able to wake up in the morning in fellowship with God? Just go like this if you think that's a good thing. I mean, I, Can I assure you something? If you go to bed tonight out of fellowship with God, you're going to wake up in the same condition tomorrow morning. Right? If you go to bed in fellowship with God, the first thing you wake up, you can begin immediately with praise upon your lips. Why? You're already in fellowship with God. You're seeking to do His will. And it's like, Lord, we got another day you've given me. Hallelujah. What can I do for your glory today? That's the attitude we take. And we have boldness and assurance. And we demonstrate that by holiness of living and loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is an amazing chapter, folks. We're going to talk in the last few little verses in this chapter next week very briefly and then move on to to chapter 4 but he's gonna say listen it all comes back to this keep his commandments keep his commandments you do that and God will not only bless you he will use you for his honor and for his glory forever praise God that's true let's just pray thank you Lord that we have this opportunity to be together to study the word we're grateful for the Apostle John and what he revealed to us here in this third chapter that true believers demonstrate their faith by living a holy life, a life of righteousness, by obedience to the commandments. And we also, Lord, show our love for you by loving others. We demonstrate that we're true Christians when we see a brother or sister in need and we don't shut our hearts up. We rather open our hearts. and We may not have a whole loaf of bread to give, but we can give a half a slice. Lord, I just want to pray that you'd help us each one according to our ability to meet the needs of our brethren. And Lord, as we're living this kind of a life, we're going to have an amazing prayer life because we're going to be able to come to you with boldness, with confidence, knowing, Lord, that according to your promises in the Word and based upon your character as a God who cannot lie, you are going to meet our needs according to your riches and glory. And so, Father, we can pray with, with boldness. Lord, help that to be the reality of our experience every day as believers in Christ. Holiness of living, love for the brethren, and as a result, boldness in coming to you in prayer. Bless your word to our hearts, Lord, and we'll thank you for Jesus' sake. Amen. And this has been the Ewok Podcast with Pastor Robbie Locke. We hope you've enjoyed this sermon today and tune in next week for another sermon from this passage. If you'd like to contact us, send us an email and we will get back to you as soon as we can. Thanks. Enjoy the rest of your day.